Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast, I'm so happy to say, is Sandra Uter. Sandra is a distinguished professor at the Department of Marine, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences at North Carolina State University. Her research uses measurements made by remote sensors, including radar, satellite, and LIDAR, as well as in situ measurements, to understand processes in the atmosphere, especially those related to clouds and precipitation. Sandra has made important advances on a wide range of meteorological problems, including the structure, dynamics, and cloud microphysics of deep convection in the tropics, shallow stratocumulus top boundary layers, winter storms in the extratropics, and others. Methodologically, Sandra's work has contributed to the algorithm used to retrieve precipitation from satellite measurements and to the diagnostic methods used to infer physical processes in precipitating clouds from radar observations. As one particularly prominent example, the contoured frequency by altitude diagram, or CFAD, that she conceived more than 25 years ago is now a standard and widely used diagnostic. And in fact, we talk about how she came up with that. Sandra and I have collaborated ourselves on research a number of times over the years because scientifically our interests overlap, although our styles and research modalities are very different since I identify more as a theorist and modeler and she as an observationalist, but they're complementary and I've learned a great deal from working with her. But more importantly, to me at least, we're old friends. Sandra and I met at the University of Washington in the late 90s when I was a postdoc and she was a research scientist and we'd both recently finished our PhDs. And then we particularly got to know each other by spending a month together on the tiny island of Kwajalein, Marshall Islands, for a field campaign there. But there's more to it than that. We both grew up in the New York area, we're about the same age, and both of us were science fiction nerds as kids and still are. And we talk about that latter one in particular, how an interest in science fiction can couple to an interest in science itself, and how the myths and tropes we pick up from sci-fi stories influence our thinking, for better or worse, on real-life issues in both science and the broader world. We also talk about the challenges of field campaigns, the decline of the routine observational network, and the way the prominence of climate reanalysis data sets, which are observation-based but not literally observations, may have contributed to that, Sandra's own recent move to small-scale long-term measurements, and a lot of other science issues. And then, later in the conversation, we get into the questions that have obsessed me on this podcast and that Sandra's also struggling with around how to do usable science and make a contribution to the climate crisis. Sandra's view on this is informed by her early experiences doing science in the private sector, including at a defense contracting company that she worked at before she went to grad school. But more recently, like me, she's been thinking broadly about how to do science that may have a concrete impact. And that conversation leads us to solar geoengineering, the role of the private sector in climate and weather science, and other topics. Sandra's a great scientist and an original thinker, and I always get a lot out of talking to her, this time being no exception. So it's my pleasure to bring you this conversation with Sandra Uter. Thanks for doing this, Sandra. Glad to be uh, here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you. So, um, as you probably noticed, we usually start with everybody's biography, and I would like mm. to start with yours. And although I think I know where you're from, why don't we start by you telling me? 
Okay, so I grew up on Long Island in New York, and I was a pretty nerdy kid. Wait, what um, town? We gotta get the, we gotta get the town. Oh, I grew up in Garden City, Massa County. Not that far out, right? Yeah, not that far out. Yeah. And even as a little kid, I had you know kind of a lot of curiosity, and fortunately, my parents really nurtured that. They got me like I think we had these little uh, science kits of the month that would come you know, once a month in these orange cardboard tubes and you would, you know, just these very simple little things you would do. So they really nurtured my, you know, my scientific curiosity. It was, But it was just like, it didn't come from anywhere that you know of. It was just- Well, I think my dad, so my dad had gone to college on the GI Bill and he had done uh, physics. So Uh I think, I think that in part came from him. And then I, I was also fortunate to have you know, teachers, both in elementary school and in high school, that also nurtured it. You know, I particularly had a great earth science teacher in high school, Mr. Kane, who had actually a series of classes that I that I took. And he like took us on field trips. The great thing about Long Island is it's where the glaciers stopped. So yeah. you've got the South Shore, which has the very fine sand and the North Shore, which has kind of the cobbly coast and you have the terminal moraine in between. So it's actually really cool to read about these things and then actually see them in real life. Is he still around? Do we want to give a no. shout out to Mr. Kane? Oh. No, he's unfortunately not still around, but I think okay. it's still worth memorializing him <laughs> because you hear this a lot where there's like this sort of key teacher who, you know, encouraged people. And and I think, you know, if, if there's any teachers out there who are listening to this, I think, you know, it does make a difference. Oh yeah. So I was in high school and I took, you know, some AP classes and, you know, thought that physics and math were interesting and cool. And I went to Brown University and that was actually the first time that I encountered kind of institutional pushback to my science interests. So, well, so I was nominally, you know, signed up to be a physics major and, you know, they assign you to a faculty member to be your academic advisor. And the particular faculty member I was assigned to was definitely old school and felt that women did not belong in physics and also was actually upset that they had let women into Brown. It had had only recently gone co-ed. Wow, really? Yeah. So that was kind of like a big shock because up to that point, you know, I had gotten pushback actually from my teenage girl peers, but not from teachers. What did the teenage girl peers say? Oh, the teenage girl peers thought that it was like really weird and icky to be interested in science and they expressed this to you yeah they did express it to you can i just ask i know i want to get back Mm -hmm. to brown in a second Mm -hmm. i mean we can maybe we can talk about this later but Mm -hmm. another thing that i know about you because we've been friends a long time is that besides science itself you have an interest in science fiction and all that kind of stuff yes did that go back to the beginning too oh yeah no that that actually comes from my mother So she was a big science fiction fan and we had a lot of these science fiction paperbacks around the house and she encouraged me to read those. And I think that also really, you know, fired up my imagination about what was possible. I mean, you know, when I left high school, you know, I thought we were going to have space colonies and moon bases, you know, in the not too distant future. Um, Yeah, we all thought that. Yeah. So... (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. You know, and there were shows about that stuff, right? There was, you know, these shows in the 1970s that, you know, basically assumed that all those things were going to be normal everyday things. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, the reason I asked about that is just that 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that uncommon that interest in that stuff goes together with interest in science. But in my experience, you know, since you were talking about the gender issue, I mean, in my experience, that is maybe even more gendered typically than the science itself. No, I think you're right. I think there, there are not a lot of girls who are interested in science fiction and there are not a lot of girls who are interested in science. And so in terms of my, I guess, teenage girl peers, that just, you know, I think high school is a very difficult time to be different. Although maybe everybody thinks they are in some way. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you really do have different interests, then, you know, you don't really have a lot of people to talk to. You know, mostly what I read was, I guess, what you would call, you know, like the hard science fiction, which is sort of, you know, pushing the technology and then, you know, talking about space exploration or visiting Mercury or, you know, it was more that kind of thing rather than the, you know, fights against the Klingons or stuff like that. Okay. I diverted you. I diverted you. So you were talking about the Brown professor who thought. Right. So so the Brown professor told you, I think women shouldn't be at Brown. Yeah. It just flat out. I mean, basically I sat down (laughs) and said, how are you? I don't remember his name. And he's like, yeah, well, I just want to tell you right off that, you know, women don't belong in physics. And, you know, and I'm upset about the fact that we are now co-ed. I mean, nowadays that would get you in big trouble, Uh, but you probably didn't report him. But I think in those days there was nobody to report him to. I mean, right, I think but- that's the thing that's only changed, I mean, since Me Too. I mean, up until the Me Too movement, there was no one to report it to. I mean, I've reported problems in the past, but, you know, they don't do anything because, yeah, it it's like, well, you know, the excuse always was, well, that's the way so-and-so is, you know, deal with it. So I was like, well, physics doesn't seem very comfortable but I had taken this class. So because of my interest in science fiction and space colonies and moon bases, I had taken this class called Mars, Moon, and Earth, which was kind of like a general educational elective in the geology department. And anyway, I had loved the class and I had aced it. And so I was like, well, you know, maybe I should do geology, you know, because this planetary geology stuff seems really cool. So anyway, I went to talk to the faculty member who was, you know, in charge of geology, and they were ecstatic to have me as a potential major. So I ended up switching majors to geophysics. And then I also managed to convince the professor of that class, James Head, to hire me for the summer as an undergraduate research assistant. And I think he was a bit skeptical about it, but I had learned computer programming in high school. And so I think that that helped. Wow. Not, I mean, that was early days of, I mean, that was early So what, what we ended up working on was the Pioneer Venus radar altimeter data set. Wow. That's the first summer of college. That's a good, uh. Yeah. Well, it took more than the first summer to do the work, but I, I mean, it started that first summer. Yeah. Was it, and so it was the geophysics major was mathy also? Yeah. The geophysics major was mathy. And the geophysics, there was there more women in geophysics, or not really? But there were plenty of other women in geology. Well, I guess not plenty. There were some, I guess. <laughs> and it was the same department, like two majors in the same. Department. Yeah, it was. It was then back then. It was called geological sciences. So they they had yeah. geology and and geophysics in the same department. Yeah. Right. So and so, did you keep working for that guy? All yeah. So I did keep working for that guy until I was a junior, and then um, you, as part of the major, you had to go to field camp, 
And so I, I went to field camp. Brown didn't really have its own field camp, so they would send us off other places. And so I, I did the field camp, actually, that Indiana University ran, which was out in Montana. And then after that, I ended up with the internship. So that was part of the summer. And then the other part of the summer is I had an internship at the U.S. Geologic Survey in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is where a lot of the planetary geology work was done. They had kind of an interesting combination. They had people sort of taking the photographs of Mars and Mercury and kind of merging them together and like airbrushing these amazing maps. And then they also had a more quantitative part where, you know, we were doing computer programming to analyze various aspects. And so the project I worked on there actually I think was related to the albedo of Ganymede. Right. Which is one, which one is Ganymede a moon? So that's one of the moons of Jupiter. So we're using, um, yeah. So we're using uh, NASA probe data. So that was a really cool experience because I'd never been to the, I mean, I kind of briefly visited the Grand Canyon, but I'd never lived, you know, in the Southwest. And so I was living in Flagstaff, Arizona, which was like so completely different from New York and from Providence. Um, So that was, that was a good experience. So a lot of people who get into geology are really outdoorsy types, but I guess mm-hmm. that wasn't that wasn't used as much. I think for me, yeah, it, it was definitely not me as much. And I think I was frankly not very good at figuring out where I should traverse to figure out what the structure under the ground was. All right. So then, so you get the degree. So I finished, so I get my degree. And at this point, I'm very burned out about school. So whereas a lot of my friends and colleagues were, you know, going to grad school, I was like, there's no way I'm going to grad school now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You just like so intensively focused on school. And, and my parents also, you know, wanted me to get a job. So I was able to leverage that, you know, image processing experience to get a job um, with an aerospace company called TRW in the Los Angeles area. And I think that, you know, was a very critical step in my professional development. So what big companies like that do is they actually invest a lot in their new employees and they expect that some of them will stay and some of them will go, you know, so you're the sort of entry level position was something called member of technical staff. But wait, so what? I can't remember what TRW's business is. Were they like a defense oh, contractor or what? Yeah, they're like a defense contractor. So they built satellites. They were like uh, one of the key contractors on the space telescope. And then they have a lot of other work that's more related to, you know, Department of Defense and, and other agencies. So the group that I was with was more into sensor data processing. Um, okay. So both signal processing and image processing. But I think, you know, in some sense, that experience at TRW was kind of like, almost like a, I don't know what you want to call it, a pragmatic grad school, because like they had the the lab that I was in, you know, everybody who came in that first year, everybody had to write a computer program according to the standards of the lab, give a presentation, write a memo. I took classes in, and this one turns out to have been really key, proposal writing, and like project management and things like that. So just sort of a lot of practical skills that have turned out to really help my work as a scientist. And it turned out I was particularly good at writing proposals 
And my lab manager, a gentleman by the name of Lyndon Hardy, he actually on the side was writing fantasy books, but he explained that proposal writing is a lot like writing science fiction because <laughs> um, you're, you know, basing it on what's what's here today, but you're sort of pushing the technology, right, a bit. <laughs> I feel like if a reviewer said the proposal was like science fiction, it would not be viewed as a No, it wouldn't comment, be viewed, but... <laughs> but I think it's actually true because if you if you particularly think about, you know, my interest in and all my background reading in hard science fiction, which is like what's going to be going on 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now, you can sort of translate to the like, okay, given what we can do right now, what can we do two years from now or five years from now? No, I, I get it. Yeah, it's a good, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Who were you so, writing them to? Was this like the, 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 the lab write proposals to government agencies or who were they? Yeah. So the lab was writing proposals to government agencies. Okay. So, but the proposal writing in some sense led to me thinking that I needed to get out of aerospace because I was writing kind of small proposals to kind of more for, you know, to test out ideas and, you know, prototyping and that kind of thing. And in order to do it for some of these agencies, you know, I had to essentially, you know, go through multiple security checks and lock myself in a walk-in safe in order to write it. Really? Yeah. Was it actually classified research or was it? Yeah, it was classified. So, oh, okay. so the problem is classified and the solution is classified, <laughs> right? So I had a little Macintosh in there in the, in the vault. And so, but I just, I remember having to memorize all these combinations because, you know, and every time I left for the day, you had to lock the stuff in another safe inside the safe. Anyway, I, I was a little worried that if I stayed there, that's what I would be doing a lot is just, you know, I did obviously have interactions with other people, but I was often the person who was like, okay, well, Sandra, you write this up. So yeah, I just was like, hmm, maybe this isn't for me. So just because the classified aspect, I mean, the, the security. Yeah, stuff it just was and also just something. the logist. Yeah, the the security is it's a big kind of logistical issue, just to yeah. kind of move in and out of these spaces, and you're very restricted in obviously who you can talk to because the the way the classification is organized is is they essentially have what they call compartmentalized intelligence, and so the the idea yeah. is that you are read into your little thing and you can yeah. only talk about it with the other people who are read into that little thing. Yeah. Need to know. Is that what they call me? Right. So it's very isolating, you know, particularly if you're working on a small project, if you're working on a bigger project, then there's obviously more people to talk to. So the next job I got was kind of completely different. And that was Symbolics Graphics Division, which was in um, Westwood, California. And they were doing, I guess, two things. One is they were doing computer graphics for the film industry. And then I was hired because they had this new partnership with this company called Pixar, who had this hardware that did very, very fast image processing. And this is about, I'm, I'm going to guess. This is like around- the mid 80s. Mid 80s. Okay. Yeah, this is the mid 80s. So you're a little bit older than me. Okay. So basically, what our product was, was the combination of this Pixar image computer and the Symbolics Lisp machine. And the idea is that you would combine artificial intelligence with fast processing to do, you know, various things. So artificial intelligence, they called it that then. Oh, yeah, totally. 
I mean, I know that I know that concept was around, but I didn't. Oh no, it's the concept of artificial intelligence has probably been around. I, I got to think probably since the sixties or before. Yeah, yeah. No, I know the concept was around, but it was. I didn't. Realize but people, that it was... no, I mean, people were doing it. I mean, they had like you know expert systems. It was it was a kind of different framework than now. Yeah. But well, okay. So part of the issue with symbolics was you know it it kind of grew very fast along with the artificial intelligence community. But then I think as a whole, the community ended up over-promising, yeah. you know, like it was like it, now, right. It's like, Oh, you have a problem. Machine learning will solve it. Back then it's like, Oh, you have a problem. You know, knowledge-based systems will, will solve it. And yeah. so they had a couple of years where there was sort of a lot of growth and a lot of promise. And then it all kind of just fizzled out because then people realized, Hey, this actually isn't going to solve all my problems. So I was basically hired as technical marketing engineer. So I developed demos and went to a lot of trade shows and visited customers with salespeople mm. to sell this system. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it was used for things like medical imaging and satellite image processing like Landsat and things like that. And so the big advantage of it, you know, and this was essentially the hardware that they were using at the time to do computer animation, but it was also mm -hmm. kind of generalized so it could be used for these other purposes. In Wait, the so end, the of, company made hardware as well. As yeah, the company made hardware. So originally, Pixar, you know, their business model was like, we're going to do this amazing computer animation and change the film industry. But in order to, you know, keep the lights on, we're going to sell this hardware. Mm. And eventually, right, they obviously pivoted and mm. stopped doing that. But at the time, they were thinking that that was a way for them to to bring in revenue. So I was there sort of, I think I would argue almost like it seemed like the peak at one point, like early in my time at Symbolics, they rented out the science, you know, the Franklin Science Museum in Philadelphia for all their customers and had like this enormous party. You know, I can't imagine how much money this costs, but like, you know, you would go around to a different exhibit and there would be like this table of amazing food. And then you would go around to another exhibit and there'd be another table. But it all... And I think just started to fall apart. And so then, you know, Symbolics was clearly, you know, and not, not just them, but the other artificial intelligence companies as well were, right, starting to lay off people and stuff like that. So as that was happening, my colleagues and I, you know, realized we have to get out because, you know, if we don't find another job, we'll be laid off. I mean, and then yeah. have to find another job. So yeah. at that point... I decided, well, you know, we sold one of these Symbolics Pixar systems to the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and they don't really have anyone to program it. And so I got a job with them. And so that's my first time doing, you know, anything related to the atmosphere. I have questions about this. So were you the person that had sold it to NCAR? Where you had well, I'm not the salesperson. So I got I just want to clarify that the actual job of selling and closing the deal is a very... Mm -hmm specialized skill set that right. I do not have. What but, I was well, was well, the, the proposal writing is kind of like that. But you but, yeah. but you said you had worked with them. So I'm just wondering like did you go there as part oh, of Oh yeah, no, I had gone there and given demos and answered their scientist questions. And yeah, we had actually brought the system there for demos right, right, on right. site. I had met, you know, some of the key scientists that I ended up working with, like Jim Wilson, um, as part so of all that. Yeah. So you started getting a sense of what the place was and what they did. Yeah, I had I had some sense. So I was hired as a software engineer by NCAR. And, and this is how many years out of school? I think it's like about four or five years out of school. Okay. Yeah, because I worked at TRW, I worked at Symbolics, and then I worked at NCAR. 
And so at NCAR, NCAR is a very weird organization. It has a very clear hierarchy where the scientists are on the top, then the engineers are, you know, not. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we were working out at Marshall. So mo- the scientists like are, were in the castle on the hill. And then actually the ones that we were working with were actually in this building on 30th Street. But we were out at the Marshall Field site, which was where the radars were. And it's also where the boulder dump was. And at the time, it's completely changed now. It was very rural. And yeah. so to get out there, you know, you would have to go along these gravel roads and sometimes the cows would get out um, yeah. from the neighbor ranch. And then, you know, I learned important skills. Like if you're trying to get around a cow, always go take your car behind the cow. Don't try to go in front of the cow because they'll just come right up. Anyway, so I learned, I learned all these important things. And, and I, I realized that this was a very different place related actually to the medicine chest. So back when I was working, you know, at Symbolics, right, so we were near Hollywood, we had a medicine chest and it had like mostly various kinds of headache remedies and antacids and, you know, band-aids and stuff like that, right? It was in the lunchroom. And I remember I was working um, and we were actually in a trailer outside of the main building and somebody came by to refresh the medicine chest and I looked at it and the medicine chest at the Marshall field site was dominated by a snake bite kit. And I was like, okay, this is very different. So we started, we were supporting the um, terminal Doppler weather radar testing, which was, was then Stapleton airport. And we were building a system that would take the radar data and quickly process it and determine if there was a microburst and then send an alert to the control tower. And then the control tower people would then tell the pilots there's a microburst alert. And then at that time, you know, different airlines had different rules about whether the pilot had to pay attention to that alert. Wait, oh, actually, now that I think about this, let me let me make sure I understand this. NCAR, you know, is a center for atmospheric research. So they were doing something that was just purely airport operations? Well, they were doing research on microbursts and then they were applying that research on microbursts to a very real world application, which is, I mean, the reason why microbursts are dangerous is because airplanes fly through them. And so after they learned about microbursts, it was like, well, we should probably prevent airplanes from flying through them. How do we do that? I guess we should pause and say what a microburst is. Sure. Okay. So... So basically, in a thunderstorm, you can get a very strong pulse of air that comes down out of the cloud and hits the ground and kind of spreads out. Imagine if you like dump a bucket of water on the ground. And if the airplane happens to be in that, you know, like the, the thing dumping down or, you know, when it hits the ground and spreads out, that's bad because you lose lift on the airplane. And it's also really turbulent and really strong winds. Yeah, but it but the danger is if you're in turbulence and you're up, you know, at cruising altitude, right? It's bumpy and uncomfortable, but it's not really dangerous because even if you bounce up and down a bit, there's room. The problem yeah. is if you're on takeoff or landing, there yeah. isn't. Yeah, right. 
you know, so there were a number of close calls at Stapleton while we were there doing the project. And word of mouth among the pilots kind of helped them understand that they should take these things seriously. So fortunately, there were no accidents, but there were some close calls. So anyway, so a software engineer supporting that. And then a piggyback project was related to now casting. So there was microburst detection, which is, is it happening right now? But then there was now casting, which is, what do we expect to happen in the next half an hour, 45 minutes? And so I was supporting more of the now casting side, but also contributed to the you know, the microburst side. So it was very stressful because we had sort of a thing with the FAA where I think it was like about a minute or two, if the updates didn't happen, they would get like a red alarm at the control tower. And so when stuff went down, we would have to scramble to get stuff back up. And the other problem was that we didn't have a lot of extra hardware. And so the actual project would happen, say, like from noon to seven and the scientists would come in and be there and we would do the actual detection and the now casting. And then they sort of had this deal with the local hotel so the programmers could stay at the hotel so we wouldn't have to leave. So we would go off and go to happy hour and eat some food at the happy hour buffet and then come back and work late into the night and then go back to the hotel and crash and then wake up again the next morning and do a little more fixes and development. And then then we would be operational again at noon the next day. And that was like seven days a week for weeks. Wait, is that even like legal? I mean, well, but see, we're all salaried, right? So they'd just be like, you have to work seven days a week for weeks and that's it? And yeah. And somebody was taking the data and doing research with it, but you, but you had this operational. We had this operational thing. So this sort of taught me how difficult it is to do an operational product where you have very small margins in time about when stuff goes wrong, that, yeah. you know, and how fast stuff has to get fixed. So why I decided to eventually leave NCAR was that when I got there, we were just doing the summer project and we would have the winter, you know, in the fall, you know, in the early part of the spring to, you know, we would get the list of features that the scientists wanted. We would have that time to do that development. Right. I guess because there's not really downbursts the rest of the year. Right. But then the management had this idea that we weren't busy enough. And so they started doing a winter project on icing And in addition to the summer project, and at that point, you know, the software team, we were just like, this is crazy. Because again, we didn't have a lot of extra hardware, you know, to do development versus running operations. And also, you know, then if we're trying to prepare, you know, and obviously icing software is different than microburst software. Right. You know, it just, it was too much. So I, you know, had visited my parents and You know, my mom, when I was in elementary school, we had this like little thing that we would do at the end of every school year where we'd have this little book where we would like list our friends and our favorite subject and what our favorite food was and our favorite book. And anyway, at the bottom of it, there was this thing about what I want to be when I grow up. And so I remember, you know, pulling this book out and looking at it and just kind of going through starting at first grade. And what I noticed was that there was a pattern. So it was like, I want to be an astronaut and a scientist. And I want to be an orchestra conductor and a scientist. And I want to do this and a scientist. And it it was like, there was this theme all through it. And I was like- You always had two things in one of them. Yeah, I always had like, at least, because I I mean, I was a little kid, right? I didn't know what I wanted to do. (laughs) 
Right, right. But some people would I might only write one at a time as they're changing. Yeah. No, I was usually writing more than one thing. Yeah, almost every year there was like, you know, I want to be an inventor or, you know, anyway. So I was like, oh, maybe I should become a scientist. <laughs> so well, I mean, it's interesting because what I hear in this story is, I mean, and, you know, I'm sure you're going to talk more about engineering versus science and all that. But mm-hmm. from your description of the experience at NCAR, it sounds to me like it, the issue wasn't really software. It no, was it wasn't software. That you were not in control of anything and you, yeah. you know, you could be pushed around and be at the whim of a very demanding, inflexible schedule and set of expectations yes. that you had no control over. Right. I think you're right. The problem wasn't software itself. It was the environment in which we were expected to do it. And I I think, you know, maybe if I'd thought more about it, I probably, you know, I might have thought, well, maybe just get a software job for people who are less crazy. Yeah. But the reason I say, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, but like the thing is that you were zeroing in on, on some level, it looks to me with the benefit of many, you know, years of hindsight, both of your own career and mine, is that academia has a lot of benefits and disadvantages and how, whether it's a good career or not depends on a lot of things, but one of them is how much you value the things that are good about it. And one of the things good about it is you don't have a boss at the end of the day. Right. So I applied to grad school and, you know, had a great visit in Seattle with the University of Washington and um, decided to go there. So I brought with me. So one of the things we had developed at NCAR was this system called Zebra, which allowed you to look at different kinds of data overlaid on each other and synced up in time. So I remember seeing you using that back then, but I didn't know that you had actually. Yeah. So I had, it was designed by some of the other software developers at NCAR, but I had contributed a a little bit to it, but I knew how it worked and I knew how to run it. And so I brought that with me to Washington. And the advantage of it is that one of the things you could do was kind of quickly move through the data, like check, you know, to see the whole sort of evolution of the storm. But you could also, we interpolated the 3D radar data. And so you could take arbitrary cross sections, uh-huh. which was something that at that time was very kind of painful to do. And in a point and clicky way? Yeah, or? in a point and clicky yeah, yeah. way. You would just drag the line and it would make the cross section. And it was great. That first summer, after my first year in grad school, I participated in the CAPE project in Florida, which was looking at, you know, squall lines and convective initiation. And and it had, you know, like three different NCAR radars. And it was, you know, kind of fun because I got to see the people that I had worked with before, but in a sort of different role. And that data set ended up being kind of one of the crucial data sets that I used as part of my thesis. Right. So just, can we say, so you, when you came into Washington, mm-hmm. you, you did your PhD I, with Bob Howes, who's the, right. was the kind of radar person there. Yeah. You weren't um, recruited just for your software skills and that's why you, it appealed to you. But at the same time you had an immediate, I mean, your radar background was immediately. Right. It was. You kept of, in that direction. I mean, that, that yeah. was directly applicable and you, yeah. Yeah. No. And you know, Bob, you know, his area is mesoscale meteorology, but he had a number of projects using radar data and, you know, already had an infrastructure for processing and, you know, interpolating and all that other stuff. So to try to, you know, distill information out of it. And then the the Zebra software was just a way of kind of visualizing it. It just made it easier than yeah. than the hardware that they had at the time. You know, the the first work that I did was related to understanding this evolution 
of the squall line and trying to understand, I guess, what's called the convective to stratiform transition. So the idea is that, you know, in the initial part of the storm, there's strong updrafts and, you know, a lot of the precipitation is produced. And then a little later, the velocities get weaker and you get sort of a broader area of precipitation, which has different sort of both vertical air motions and and somewhat different microphysics in terms of how the particles, you know, gain mass. And so with this data set from CAPE, we had excellent data, both for the velocities, we had dual Doppler, which involves two radars, and then we had another radar that was looking more at the microphysical fields. And so mm-hmm. I was able to combine all that together. So dual Doppler is you have two radars looking at the same same thing, thing at the and, same time. And if you time. have two, yeah, if you have two, you can actually figure out which direction. Yeah, you could figure out it's not perfect. You have to make some assumptions. It's better to have three, but you almost never have three. But you could sort of use continuity of mass and then not only get the horizontal winds, yeah. but estimate the vertical motion so that you could figure out where the updraft and downdrafts go. And it's a fairly, to get to do the retrieval of the dual Doppler is a fairly, I, I seem to understand that it's a fairly heavy uh, Yeah, it's a relatively, uh, yes, it was very time consuming to do it. So that work and the zebra stuff kind of led to my first, what I would consider important contribution to the field. So at the time when people, you know, when you wrote a paper, or gave a presentation, you know, and you wanted to illustrate something, you would take a cross section, you would take a horizontal cross section or a vertical cross section. And I was kind of, I don't know, frustrated and disturbed about the fact that there was no kind of rules about where you should take the cross section. Like, mm-hmm. how do you know which is the cross section that's going to, you know, illustrate what's going on in the storm? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the advantage of the Zebra software is I could sit there and take lots of cross sections and then they were all different and they all told different stories. And then I was like, well, how am I supposed to figure out what's going on here? Yeah. And so this led to this idea of doing a joint frequency distribution of different fields like reflectivity or vertical air motions and height. So basically what I sort of became obsessed about was I want to look at the whole distribution, not just what's in this cross section. And so basically you take the information and the volume, and then you just take the distribution of whatever the variable is, reflectivity or vertical air motion or mass flux or whatever. And then you just show that and then you just organize it by height. Statistical distribution, meaning how many of the pixels in the radar have which value of the thing. Exactly. And so... You know, when you do that, and we called them CFADs, we called them contoured frequency by altitude diagrams, because at the time, computers, we did things in contours rather than raster, but essentially, it's, it's just a joint frequency distribution, that there were repeatable patterns. Yeah. That when you looked at a squall line in a certain stage, there were repeatable patterns about what the velocity distribution was and what the reflectivity distribution was. And then we could use that to then understand and infer what the processes were to get from one stage of storm evolution to the next. I don't know if I've actually ever read the original paper, but I know these diagrams because you used them for a long time and the rest of the field started using them too. And you know, so this is an invention of yours that, that became mainstream and still is. I mean, radar is the best way for seeing inside the inner workings of a thunderstorm. And we don't really have too many other or maybe right. we don't have any any other kinds of data that can actually do that. And it was brought into meteorology by a few people. I mean, Howes was definitely, I don't know, I think the most important one of that time. But even before him, so, I mean, if you go back to the group and actually his advisor at MIT, Pauline Austin, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were sort of instrumental in 
you know, because MIT, you know, was there when they were developing radars for use in World War II. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, like so many things, it's a military. Yeah, right. Because at the time, right, in World War II, the, the weather was sort of an annoyance because it got in the way. And then after the war was over, they realized, oh, there's actually really useful information about the volumetric structure of the weather yeah. using yeah. radar. You know, and then that led to things like the Thunderstorm Project in the late 40s which was, you know, one of the first projects to use radar in that way. Right. But what I was interested in, I mean, the history Mm -hmm. of radar is super fascinating. And we could talk about it a long time. And our field growing out of military Mm -hmm. research is a a whole topic that I think our students don't learn enough about because we don't really teach them the history of science. But at any rate, what I was interested in the story is more about you and the psychology of it, because in this field of radar, there's tremendous amount of information about the storm, but it's of a peculiar kind. For one thing, these typical weather radars, you only see where there's precipitation. Right. You don't see otherwise. You only generally have a small field of view. Now there's almost radars everywhere in the United States, but in general, we don't have them everywhere. You know, the beams are tilted and they spread out and there's a whole art to interpreting it. And as a consequence, to somebody from a different part of the field, some of the science and radar looks a little bit um, impressionistic because there's a lot of expertise that goes into interpreting. It's sort of like paleoclimate in a way. A lot of it is knowing how to read this kind of data that not that many people really know how to read well. And what bothered you was the subjectivity of, yes, the, exactly. of the reader. Like you couldn't stand that. Like you wanted a systematic, right. you know, logical thing where it's not about, you know, does Sandra know how to, you know, tell the story? Right. Like you couldn't stomach that. And I think that's something that comes back and back in your... No, I think it does, Research. you know, it does where it's like, so I guess the way I, I describe it is the CFAD was born of frustration because I was just like, if you look at one cross section, you would say, tell one story and look at another one, you tell another story. And it's like, there's no way to distinguish between those, you know, and this happens actually, I think they talk about this where you just get uncomfortable about something and you just like, yeah. there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of things come out of that. So that was the f- initial work. And then I got involved in Toga Core, which was this enormous project in the tropical Pacific where yeah. we had the NOAA P3 aircraft, which had radars. They, they, all, they both had a radar sort of in the belly of the plane, which would scan around horizontally. And then they also had these tail radars, which would sort of do these kind of corkscrewy scans. Anyway, you could take the tail radar data and get you know, three-dimensional information out of it. And so sort of taking those sort of same types of tools and then applying it to the aircraft radar. And then also Togacor also had multiple ships with radar. And so that was sort of a big project to understand what was going on in terms of the Madden-Julian oscillation and the West Pacific warm pool. And, you know, what's different about the structures of these kind of big, you know, mesoscale storms over the warm ocean versus over the, you know, Midwest, which is where most of the work about, you know, mesoscale, you know, storms had been done. So that was sort of the second part of the thesis work. And so you went in the field for Togacor. Yeah. So we went into the field. It was Honiara in the Solomon Islands. That was a pretty, I guess, rough deployment. One, because of the length, the project was nearly four months. Two, because of things like malaria, which was endemic in the region. Honiara is the name of the island? No, the island is Guadalcanal. Honiara is the city. So Guadalcanal is where there was this horrendous battle 
in right, World War where II, yeah. there was a naval battle in what's called Iron Bottom Sound because so many ships were sunk, and then the Marines were essentially abandoned on Guadalcanal and basically written off, but they managed to hold out. So there's a lot of history and there's a lot of kind of remnants from the war that that was really interesting to see. Anyway, so yeah, we we did those flights, came back, got a great, fantastic data set, and then you know we did these other field projects. We did the Coast Project, and then I finished up. You know, I was finishing up my thesis and there was this opportunity to do this ship project. So there was this sort of discrepancy between two different kinds of satellite estimates of precipitation. You had the estimate of precipitation from the satellite infrared, which basically says, okay, the higher the top of the cloud and the bigger the area where you have high cloud tops, that's more precip. And then there was this other method which used passive microwave, which is looking more into the interior of the storm. And there was this discrepancy because in terms of the East Pacific, that the passive microwave said there was a lot of rain there. And mm-hmm. the IR, the cloud tops aren't that high. The IR said there isn't. And this actually has big ramifications for things like, you know, global circulation and things like that. And so there was like, okay, Noah's building a new ship. You know, if we put a radar on the ship, we could go out there and find out what's really happening. So wait, wait, just to translate a little bit. So the passive I, I, microwave and the IR, it's mm-hmm. two, both are satellite right. measurements, but right. different wavelengths. So that right. the sees the different aspects of the Right. So the IR, cloud. unfortunately, just sees the top of the cloud. It yeah. can't see inside. And the passive microwave, it's not like radar in the sense that it, it can't see the volume, but it sort of takes the whole column underneath it and sort of, you know, combines that information together to give an idea about what's going on on the inside. Right. But if you can get a radar there, a radar which is an active instrument. Right, an active, active instrument. Then you then can you get can the 3D st- structure and right. then you would be able to resolve this mystery. Yeah. Can so, I just, so the other mm-hmm. thing I want to make sure that we sort of say, because it's sort of implicit in what you're saying, is just that in meteorology, by the time you and I entered it, it had mm-hmm. long been the case that most of what most people did in the field was not field observations. Right. Like that had... You know, at least by after World War II, most of the observations had fairly become routinized because of weather forecasting, like the weather balloons are launched by the Weather Service. So there's a part of the field that does field observations, and that's the part that is looking at specific sets of processes like this, where you, the, the routine data don't get it. So you have to actually go there right. and observe it. So that's the part you were in. But anyway, so this is the context that you're working in. You're doing these field yeah. campaigns that are to understand things that require somebody to actually go there because right. you know, we have routine exactly. data. They're not adequate. Because this was this is like the middle of nowhere in the East Pacific. Well, the satellites see it, but the point is the satellites aren't good enough and you don't Well, but the satellites are disagreeing, you know. Right, so right. it's like well, how do we yeah. resolve the disagreement between the satellites? One is clearly right, right and one is clearly wrong because they're saying opposite things. Right. And there's no land for anybody to go right. on and like and there's no islands or anything. So this was kind of my first leadership role in the field where planned this cruise out to the tropically specific and it was actually the first research cruise of the NOAA ship Ron Brown. But by this time you had got your PhD, yeah? Yeah, by or this no? time I had my PhD. But you stayed at Washington. But I stayed at Washington. So I was not a postdoc, I just moved directly to staff. It was just like on research staff. And so, you know, we had to get the ship ready, you know, I had to figure out where to put the meteorological sensors. We were able to get a loan of a radar from MIT to put on it, got to get the people to do that. And, you know, there was a lot of logistics, but we were out there and we're getting a great data set because just nobody's seen this stuff before, right? It's, It's too remote. 
And then we had a medical emergency with a couple, I guess about two or more weeks left. How, and, out of how many? How long was the experiment? Oh, it was, uh, it was just 49 fun-filled days. It was a 49-day 40, cruise. <laughs> so on day 30-something, you had a medical Yeah, emergency. I can't remember exactly what day, but just so let's say about day 30, we had a medical emergency. And it was actually one of one of the people working with me. We had to bring them back to San Diego. And, you know, it was a clear decision. No data is worth somebody's health. It was, it was an absolute clear decision, but it put us in a bit of a quandary because by the time we got to San Diego, there wouldn't be enough time to go back to where we were. Right. So, you know, there was sort of like these frantic phone calls about, okay, well, we've got this ship time, you know, what do we do? And I think it was actually like Chris Brotherton and Conway Leovi were up at Washington. They were like, well, you know, you're, you're right near the Marine Stratocumulus region, you know, off San Diego. Why don't you just take the ship right. out there? Um, you know, you could launch a bunch of weather balloons, you know, maybe run your radar and, you know, at least it won't be a complete loss. Right. And this is all in the mid. So this was uh, 97. This was 97. Yeah. So this actually led to something super surprising, which was that nobody would ever have funded taking a ship with a C-band radar out to look at marine stratocumulus. But when we did it. And can we just say why that is? Oh, because that's it's a precipitation radar, and the thought was that these clouds aren't really precipitating and that you'd never see anything. They wouldn't be sensitive enough to see anything. Right. So I just want to say I hadn't really thought of this in advance, but mm-hmm. this season we also have Chris Brotherton as a guest, and he had okay. around this time just sort of explained how the stratocumulus break up. Mm-hmm. And actually, this year was right before I got to Washington, too. I think you and I would meet each other a few months after this. Yeah. So this had just all happened, and you're out there with the ship. Yeah, so we're out there with the ship. So we you know, we decided, okay, we'll take a lot of soundings, might as well run the radar. And so what we found was that there was actually quite a lot of precipitation and you know, much heavier than anyone thought. And so then this sort of led to the work related to marine stratocumulus and drizzle. But it was like the first real evidence that, you know, there's actually reasonably heavy drizzle and that this is part of what's driving the organization of these clouds. So for people who like we've talked about marine stratocumulus mm-hmm. with Chris and now with you, but for people who know Southern California, like this mm-hmm. is in summer over the ocean and to some extent onto the land in San Diego, it's just very gray and overcast, but it doesn't really rain. People think it right. really so, rain. it's a dry so, climate. Yeah. So the, the way the cloud deck works is, is closer to land, it's kind of shallower. And as you go further away from the coast, it gets deeper. And it's only when you're far from the coast, but you're still in the cloud deck that you get the drizzle. Okay, so we so we did that one, and then I guess already in the works were two other projects: MAP, the Mesoscale Alpine Project, and Quadex, which was the Quadrilon experiment, which was associated with NASA ground validation. And I remember that Bob House had this big world map in his office, and he had recently come back from Milan, Italy, to kind of scout out locations for radars for the Mesoscale Alpine Project. And he said, well, you know, it looks like these projects are going to overlap. So one of us is going to have to go to Italy and the other one will have to go to Kwajalein. <laughs> and then he said, I'm going to Italy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I ended up doing a lot of the planning of the Kwajalein experiment which had some NASA aircraft, uh, had the NASA DC-8, had the University of Washington Convair, and then we had the NOAA ship Ron Brown. 
And then we also had another smaller aircraft. Anyway, so that was a reasonably big project. Um, it took a lot of logistics. We ended up putting people on different islands, launching weather balloons. Yeah, there was like 100 people in that project. And, you know, Kwajalein. One, one of them was me. One of them was you. That's right. That's where, <laughs> and you worked in the op center, I think, overnight, because we had to kind of keep an eye on things all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you would like stare. We had like great, you know, real time satellite data. And then when the planes were up, we had aircraft tracks. And then we had the radar at Kwajalein. There's a, an S band radar there associated with the uh, FAA. And so, you know, all those things, again, using the Zebra software, that might be where you used it. Yeah, I certainly at least saw it. I can't remember if I used it or not. but Yeah, so, you know, we would then direct the planes into different aspects of the storm. This is also, it's worth explaining that this is also the military history of the field because Kwajalein right. and the Marshall Islands are the middle of the Pacific. And it's still, I think, this atoll, which is part of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, is basically rented by the U.S. as a big military base, all these islands. Yeah, so it's not as militarized as it used to be. I, You know, they're using it now for a lot of commercial space launches. Okay. Uh, which is very different from when we were there in, in 99. I mean, they're uh, tiny specks of islands. No, right? they're tiny specks of islands, but, you know, because of the low latitude, it's a good place to launch things. Yeah. And I mean, the, the H-bomb tests in Well, those were kind of in bikini, were, bikini were a bit yeah, further just, away. Yeah. Not but, the same at all, but not far. Yeah. But Kwajalein, you know, back to this whole World War II thing, right? So I'd been on Guadalcanal. And that was a ma major battle. There was a major battle on Kwajalein. I mean, Kwajalein was essentially bombed down to the coral. There had been a big Japanese base on Kwajalein Atoll. And there's yeah. still a Japanese cemetery on one of the islands. Oh, uh, yeah. On Roy Namor, that was not bombed to the coral. There's more sort of buildings and stuff from the Japanese occupation of those islands. Um, yeah. But I mean, but to summarize, you know, you've been, you got your PhD doing one one or two right. field programs and then finished and did a whole bunch yeah, more did field a couple, programs. Did a couple more field programs. I think so the the work that we did with that sort of accidentally specific project where we went into the marine stratocumulus, that then basically there was going to be this big project in two thousand one that Chris Bretherton was one of the leaders on where they were going to put a ship out into the Southeast Pacific marine stratocumulus. Yeah. And we had demonstrated that, you know, a weather radar would work. And so, you know, basically said, hey, do you want to do this project? And I was at that point, I was 100% on soft money. And plus, it sounded interesting. And so I thought, yeah, that sounds great. So that one was cool, because we got to leave from the Galapagos Islands. Mm. Was that epic? That was, that was epic. epic. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. epic. So we got there a couple of days early and, and were able to see some of the Galapagos and then got on the ship. And then, you know, we did a transect down and then got off at Arica in Chile. So we did that one and then spent a lot of time analyzing those data sets. And then so at this point, I had like transitioned from being research staff to research faculty at Washington. And I was, you know, had a a substantial chunk of money from NASA to associated with the ground validation of their precipitation satellite, uh, the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission, and then their follow-on, the Global Precipitation Mission. But right around 2004, NASA's priorities shifted, and they pushed the launch of the Global Precipitation Mission back, and they mm. were going to sort of 
put on the back burner the ground validation work and I realized, okay, well, better get another job. I mean, in some sense, the theme in all these field projects is you're going and looking into the clouds in different meteorological contexts. And a lot Mm -hmm. of it was motivated by satellite observations where the satellites see some things, but they don't quite see everything. So you were involved. I mean, you worked with the satellite data too, but a lot of what you were doing was this field programs to to really look closer so that the satellites would be able to, you know, to to, to have ground truth for the satellites to know what they're really seeing. Yeah. And and so that's what TRIM was and that's what GPM was. These are space missions to measure precipitation from space. Right. And then you want to take sort of detailed measurements of the ground to kind of help kind of revise and improve the satellite algorithms. And also kind of, you know, you have sort of this, just sort of compare it to what's actually happening. Because you're with the satellites, you're having to make, you know, some estimations and assumptions because, you know, the satellite data is, it's got limitations. And so when you sort of make those choices, you want to try to make them as informed as possible. Right. So, you know, I started looking for faculty jobs, which I got to say, I hadn't, you know, up to that point, I guess, so I guess it wasn't so much deliberate as more like, okay, well, you know, if I want to continue doing research, I have to have a job that that I can't be a hundred percent on soft money. So I, you know, was given the offer at NC State and came to NC State in 2005. And at that point, I kind of changed my philosophy about fieldwork a bit. One was that I, you know, used my startup to buy some equipment that I could sort of, some little radars, something called the micro rain radar. And Mm -hmm. the, the advantage of this is it's small and it's, you know, it's hooked to the internet and you can just leave it you know, someplace for months or years, you don't have to constantly be there tending to it. Yeah. And so I kind of switched my observations from these sort of very intensive field projects to the kind of sort of much smaller, you know, just let's leave the radar out there for, you know, a bunch of winter seasons, collect, you know, collect data. And so kind of, you know, moving away from from the big projects. I did do another big project in 2008. There was another marine stratocumulus project called Vocals, which had ships and aircraft, and again, back in the Southeast Pacific. And then actually right now I'm involved in a NASA project looking at winter storms, and then as a couple of NASA aircraft. But my tendency now is to kind of do more longer-term observations and monitor them, you know, they're essentially like internet appliances. You can just log into them and say, oh yeah, it looks like it's fine. And sometimes it's not fine. And then, you you know, we have an instrument mentor on site and mostly what we ask them to do is, you know, can you reboot the computer? These things are very, you know, reliable. And how much of the motivation for this change is just the logistics and funding issues make it more practical versus? I think it's also, you know, there's certain questions like, I, I've gotten more interested in, let's just say, routine weather, because I think some of the things we take for granted, we don't really understand as well as we pretend when we teach them in the classroom. And, you know, you talked about this idea about being frustrated with things. So one of the things that I got frustrated about was sample size, yeah. right? So the the problem with the field project is it's so expensive to be out there, you know, you don't end up with you know, if you have a ship project, you get a couple weeks of data, you know, an aircraft project, you know, maybe you get 10 missions, each mission might have six hours of usable data, you know, your sample sizes are small. And so I started yeah. kind of getting frustrated about that. And so, you know, one of the things we do now, we utilize a lot of the operational data sets, like particularly the Nextrad network in the US. And 
I can go back 15, 20 years and I can get like, you know, 120 winter storms. And to me, that's a better data set than one season's worth. If I'm really trying to understand what's going on. Can you, you can do statistics where you slice things thinly. Well, and also it's just like you can test your idea. So the problem with a lot of, you know, in practice, what a lot of ideas are, you look at a storm and you're like, aha, the reason why this is happening is because, you know, of this particular set of circumstances. And then if you don't have a lot of samples, right, you're essentially kind of telling a story about that storm. And you don't really have a good sense of how representative is that story. And what we usually find, and my grad students and I run into this all the time, is we're like, oh, we think this is related to this process. Like right now, one of the things we're looking at is we have these actually very, and you've got one, these pressure sensors with this network yes, of about, pressure it's sensors. about three feet from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. So we have pressure sensors here in the Raleigh area, up in the New York area in Long Island. And actually, I, I was able to get some up in Toronto with the help of Environment Canada. So we're seeing these pressure waves in the atmosphere. And so the original thought was, oh, they're associated with storms. Well, you look at a lot of storms, you look at times without storms, it's like, well, sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. So inevitably, you know, my grad students and I, you know, it's sort of like, well, it's more complicated than we thought. But, you know, so if you have this idea, if you only looked at a couple of samples, you might say, aha, these pressure wave signatures are associated with, you know, strong precipitation and, you know, lows off the coast of Long Island. But then if you look at a lot of samples, you realize, yeah, yeah, but they also happen when there's nothing going on. And so then you're really having to revise your hypothesis, you know, like, so what we're struggling right now with the pressure sensors is, well, there are probably multiple reasons why you get pressure waves. Can we sort of untangle them? You know, we're still not clear what are the various kinds of triggers. Certainly if you have storms that often yields environments conducive to wave ducting, you know, so they can travel further. But it can be frustrating because when you look at a lot of examples, essentially you break your hypotheses all the time. So actually, we should just say, because I think this is not a standard research strategy, mm-hmm. how you did this, you have these pressure sensors that are not much bigger than a USB thumb drive right? that, that you've given to various friends and colleagues and have them stick yes. them on a on a Ethernet cable at their, in my case, my apart, I have one in my apartment and one in my office, and I don't know how right. many other people you've and there's, given them I to. I think there's one at Lamont, and I've given them, I've got other friends in the New York area and um, then the weather service. So what, what we discovered was, and, and this is also was the case with the micro rain radar, it's often easier to put things on private property. Yeah. So, so this is Sandra's unique, you know, yeah. network of high, how many do you have out there in the world? I don't know. Total. I mean, we've got New York's probably got the most when they're all up. Like maybe we have like 10 ish in New York. I think we have like five, six ish in the Toronto area. And then I think we've got four or five ish here in the Raleigh area. Yeah. And no, my colleague, uh, Matt Miller basically, you know, invented these um, and builds them, you know, and they, they cost like, you know, less than $50 a piece. And then we just, you know, it's the whole idea was to make it very easy for people to help us with our, you know, our data collection. <laughs> Yeah. Every once in a while, he said, I get an email from him saying, hey, the thing's down. Could you right. like, un- unplug it and replug it? Exactly. <laughs> right. So so this is, yeah, this is how I collect the observation these days. Like, yeah, we monitor these things. And then, yeah, we just ask people to power cycle them. But we're getting, you know, we're getting this really good data set. And I have a PhD student who's looking at it now and trying to trying to figure out what it what it all means. So I think that's been 
a big change for me is looking more at routine observations over long time periods, multiple seasons, just because, as I said, this frustration with sample size. You and I had talked about this idea about the observation network is overall not as good as it was. Yeah. So there's been this thing of like, well, we don't need surface observations. We don't need soundings because we have satellites or we have reanalysis, which is where you take the model forecasts and you mix in what observations you have. But I, I don't think they're adequate for a lot of purposes. And, you know, so this sort of that's sort of been the excuse. Like we used to have wind profilers at various places in the U.S. And now, you know, a lot of those have been shut down. There's still some on the West Coast associated with atmospheric river work. But the sort of routine observations. And then I think even just looking at the satellites, you know, if you if you think about some of the really kind of workhorse satellites, like, you know, the MODIS satellites, which were put up in the early 2000s, you know, those are some of their instruments are not working anymore. I mean, they're they're, you know, on their last little legs. So there's there's not going to be as good of information as as we had even a few years ago. And the other thing is we've got sort of some blind spots. Like one of them is Africa. There's so few observations, routine, publicly available, you know, observations in Africa. You know, yeah. th- there's a couple of weather balloons like up, you know, in Egypt on, and on the West Coast. But there's enormous, I mean, this is an enormous continent with a huge numbers of people. And we can't even monitor what's going on. Yeah, And I see this, you know, as a, as a problem, part of understanding what's going to happen is understanding what's happening now or what's happened in the recent past. And we just flat out don't have that data. I mean, you know, the other big place where we don't have a lot of data is the oceans, right? We have most, almost everything we know about the weather over the ocean comes from satellite, but there are certain types of things you just can't get very well from satellite. I mean, there was this idea that you could use this GPS occultation and refractivity, but there's sort of like one equation and two unknowns. It works okay kind of in the upper levels of the atmosphere where things are relatively dry, but at the lower levels of the atmosphere where there's a lot more moisture, it's too under constrained. You can't really get anything that's really? close. I thought, yeah. it worked. I, thought they, I thought it worked in the boundary layer. With no, it does not. I mean, they produce a profile, but one of the things one of my students did is we compared the profile from the occultation soundings to the soundings at St. Helena, which is one of the few places in the Southeast Atlantic, where there are soundings, and they're very mm. far apart, particularly in the boundary layer, which is very critical. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, the oceans, there's never been a lot of soundings because it's hard to right. have a place to launch them from. I mean, Africa used to have a few more, I guess, but it's, you know, there it's obviously a problem of overall, or I don't know if it's obvious, but it, part of the problem is overall level of investment that has managed to happen. But you know, in the U.S. maybe is the most, I mean, we still have a lot compared to the oceans or Africa, but it's, I think it's an, the U.S. is an interesting case because it's still a rich country with a lot of science. So, and yet this basic thing is kind of declining. So to what extent do you think it's just the generic problem of people always want to invest in new things and, you know, maintaining anything for a long period of time is unsexy and hard to raise money for in any system, whether it be private sector or public or well, I think it's it's also just a shift in philosophy, you know, and actually Wendy Parker has written about this is, you know, is reanalysis, you know, some people are using these model reanalysis instead of observations. But for some purposes, that's fine. And other purposes, it doesn't work very well. 
But anybody who does reanalysis will tell you that you can't do it without observation. You can't make it without observations. What the reanalysis does is it'll take an observation in, but if it's too far away from the solution that it thinks, you know, it's sort of first guess solution, it will ignore it. And so yeah. in some sense, ironically, in the places where the models struggle the most, they don't really incorporate the observations that we do have. And you always want to sort of think about adequacy for purpose of your particular problem. One question is, you know, does the scientist use the reanalysis or raw observations for their research? And the other question is, should the observations exist? And that and that question to say we can substitute reanalysis is just silly. Is well, ridiculous. but it's so but I think what's happened is that it's not an either or. It's like, well, it's okay if we degrade the observation network because so yeah, nobody's saying, you know, get rid of all the yeah. upper soundings. And it's a, and it can be a marginal thing because sometimes one station here or there and it might not matter to the overall level, but if you keep Well, doing but it, you know, and it, as I said, we used to have, you know, like the wind profiler network, you know, NOAA had wind profilers in a lot of places. We actually used to have one not far from where I live here in Raleigh, and you know, that was super useful for the boundary layer. It was useful like, you know, just very pragmatic things like when they have to do controlled burns, like understanding what was going on with the boundary layer to sort of inform those kind of decisions, you know, air quality issues, all this other stuff. And then, you know, it just, right, it's not supported anymore. I think the other issue is that, and you, you talked about this earlier, is not many people do observations. It's easier, I think, to do particularly a master's degree, you know, with modeling, right? Because you you know, can run some experiments and produce some stuff and make some graphs and observations are messy and annoying and things break. And, you know, you may put a lot of effort in and not get a great data set. Well, that's always been true. But in some fields, the observations are important because they're necessary. I mean, if you look at the history of oceanography, right? Yeah. There's a tradition of people went out on ships and made the observations. There was no choice. They did everything else. But in our field, they became commoditized. Right. Such that you could get the data without having to produce it. And that maybe made people not valued as much. Okay. I, I just think it's more of like a philosophical switch and also just, I guess, because things do move sort of in and out of fashion. And then, you know, but as those things happen, those courses aren't being taught, people aren't being trained, you know, yeah. and then it just sort of falls out of what sort of the community, you know, sort of thinks about. But to me, let's maybe sort of look ahead to the future and things like climate change and geoengineering, it's yeah. really important to know what's actually happening. And that, you know, comes back to observations. And, you know, are there kind of creative solutions like to figuring out how to get more soundings over the ocean? I mean, like the Department of Energy did some testing where they put some instruments on some container ships. Can the lessons learned from that be where that kind of program could be expanded? You know, and, and your question of who's going to pay for it you know, I think that's another important question. You now have different corporations paying for geoengineering studies, geoengineering modeling studies. Would those people be interested in essentially baseline observations to see one, what's happening, and two, once some of these things are tested, what actually the impacts are and not just uh, like a field project? It scares me to think that that's how we're going to fund the observational network. That's well, that's but I think, you know, sort of frightening. It, it is, but it isn't. I mean, I think the thing right now, the reality right now is you have these big corporations who 
have orders of magnitude more money in their R&D budget than the National Science Foundation and NASA and the Department of Energy combined. Yeah. So for them, $100 million isn't a big deal. But they don't have a commitment to act in the public interest. Well, some of them do. I mean, as I said, you know, there's these consortiums that are funding these geoengineering work. I think they they uh, want. I, I don't think that's in the public. Well, well, I don't I mean, know. But I think, you know, so that's the question. Well, the other thing is, could you even just convince them to do it as part of their green PR? I don't know. You know I mean, I mean, but the, the basic situation you're describing, I mean, let's just summarize it, is that. The routine observational network is declining. Yes. And I mean, so we're arguing about the reasons for that. I mean, it seems to me that part of the reason is that it's always sexier to do a new thing than it is to maintain an old thing. And But yet for climate, you inherently need to maintain old things because you want to see things change over time. And right. so you have to keep doing the same observations year on year. And for whatever reasons, we're not investing in this and, and, the, and the stuff is declining. I mean... Whether having corporations do it because they want to do geoengineering, I mean, I think that's well. The other reason why they might want to do it, you know, and I've been some of the recent stuff is is looking at the energy sector and their sort of sensitivity to weather. I know they're talking about putting these enormous wind farms out off the coast, you know, New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts and stuff like that. They're suddenly going to be much more interested in winds. I mean, we could argue about what's feasible. Mm-hmm. And what, but and what the different strategies, creative strategies might be. But don't you think the right way to do it is to say basic weather prediction and climate monitoring is in the public interest, and therefore the government should cover this. I mean, and then the data and the data should be free. I mean, rather than having you know going hoping that different corporations feel generous at any given moment in time. So I think there's just a question about. Yeah. I mean, and and maybe, we, you know, this is almost sort of circling back to the issue about science fiction and Star Trek. So there's the idealistic view, which is, yes, it is in the public interest. But, you know, if the government's got other priorities, then maybe the private sector picks up the slack. Oh, you're saying because the government's dysfunctional. I mean, is this a reaction to our recent... um... Well, I think it's... it's... (sighs) I mean, we can, I think it's useful to just, to say what we think should happen. Right. And then to but, say, okay, that's I think, not happening. But it's, so but it's not happening. So how do you, you know, but I think, you know, what in any sort of ecosystem, whether it's the government ecosystem or it's the, you know, industrial ecosystem, right? There's finite resources, there's money and there's time, right? And give the private sector credit. They can often do things faster, you know? Sure. So... Like if we have to wait another 10 years for a reasonable network of observations over Africa, yeah, I actually don't know if that would happen in 10 years or 20 years. We can't really wait. We need them now. And what's the best way of doing that? And should we, you know, think creatively and it's sort of outside the box from what we normally think of in terms of, of getting this done? Because these major companies have so much money doing that kind of investment. You're right. It's obviously not associated with their core business, but you know, maybe they would do it because it's a benefit to their, you know, image. Yeah. It just, it just, what disturbs me about this is that as a strategy for the world, I mean, is that some corporation could decide to do it and then the next year they can decide it's not in their interest. They maybe decide it's not in their interest, but you know, but, but again, I think, you know, and the data might be restricted. Right. So, but that's the thing is the data needs to be public. Everybody needs to have access to it. That's part of the issue right now where a lot of these wind farms and photovoltaic 
installations do take weather data, but it never gets out, right? Right. You know, it's it's all held internally. And I could see how there's a competitive issue where maybe you don't want the real-time data to go out, but just put it on a little time lag. And then, you know, a month, you know, if it's a month old, there's no competitive reason not to release it. But it doesn't happen. But it doesn't happen because I don't, because we don't have these conversations. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, if I look at like NSF or Department of Energy or NASA, they don't right now have the resources. You know, that's one of their reasons for not doing it, right? Particularly NOAA is like, well, they don't have the resources to maintain these networks of wind profiles or increase the number of upper air soundings or doing all these other things. And they have, they have other priorities. Right. But I mean, weather forecasting is the weather services job, and that's who has done the radio sons historically. Right. And so it's a choice on some level not to keep that up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you and I have talked about this, and I I hadn't quite grasped the extent to which there it's it is the case that these observational networks are declining and it doesn't it's not getting that much attention within the field. You you can work in this field and not know it. I mean, well, then that's because so few people use observations in their kind of native format. So in this in the sense of downloading the actual data and you know usually it's you know quality control and stuff like that. You can get it from an archive, but it's you know there's going to be missing data and all this other stuff. You're having to deal with all that in a way that you don't have to deal with that if you just download reanalysis. Right? There's never any missing data in reanalysis. Right. Right. The reanalysis, again, is the hybrid of right. observation and model that's used most often for climate studies. It's sort of the best estimate of the global right. state of the atmosphere, but it's on a regular grid that doesn't have missing data. And it's, you know, it's the, it's the global on average best guess, but it loses some of the richness in the observations, even in the, in the places where there are observations. Yes. The observations are, you know, yeah. have, have detail and, and, that the, that the reanalysis loses. Right. So, you know, some of those details are things like how things vary, you know, between the day and the night, the diurnal cycle. Um, some of those details are, you know, what happens relatively close to the ground, you know, not just at the surface, but, you know, let's say the first kilometer or two, you know, so one of the things we're working on now is looking at model output versus observations for weather decision support. And um, we started with some work for Delta Airlines meteorology. And so, you know, when you actually look at what real-time observations are readily available, you're mostly looking at where there are airports, which for Delta, of course, is fine. But, you know, if you're trying to understand the context, you, you don't want to look not just at the airport, but, you know, in the vicinity. So we started off by looking at, you know, just the main airports, but then we've sort of added like all the little airports. But even that, like when we started adding airports outside of the US, one of the things that we found was sometimes people like turn the sensors off at night. So you have an Mm. airport sensor that's working. And then, you know, when you shut the airport, you know, these are little airports, when they shut the airport down at night, for some reason, they shut the sensors down too. So we don't even have Mm. 24 hour day data from Mm. various places, Canada, Central America and places like that. And so, Mm. you know, when we're trying to do sort of a systematic comparison about how well is the model forecasting, we have all these data gaps and that's just like temperature and dew point and wind. When you start talking about precipitation amounts, which, you know, it's something we know how to measure pretty well, but that data set is even more sparse. A lot of places will like note whether it's precipitating or not, but not the amounts, or maybe they'll just report 
12 hour amounts or 24 hour amounts. But the problem with that is if you're trying to like thinking about potential impacts of climate change where you would have more intense precipitation. So if you have like, let's say five millimeters of rain in 24 hours, you don't know if that was like a little bit of rain over 24 hours or five millimeters over one hour. And then that makes a big difference, right? In terms of, you know, whether you have flooding or, you know, what kind of storm it was. And so not being able to distinguish those things, that's a problem. And it's not like we don't technically know how to measure precip. We know how to measure precip actually, you know, minute by minute or less, but it's not reported. I, w- I want to talk about ge- geoengineering and also your overall climate. Um, you know, I don't want to call it a midlife crisis. My version of it is a midlife crisis. Yes, you, my version. Yeah. Ver- so, okay. So, Right now, we're definitely seeing things that we haven't seen a lot before, like enormous wildfires and droughts, very intense storms. And the scientific consensus is that this is due to the increased carbon dioxide, which is due to humans. And so the question is, how do we sort of prevent the bad side effects of this thing that we've done to the atmosphere? And one of the most basic ones is obviously stop adding as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and there's a variety of different ways to do it. And then there's sort of like these band-aids where you can take an analog, in this case, to volcanoes, very intense volcanoes, which spew a lot of reflective material into the stratosphere, and essentially artificially do that. And so essentially you're reflecting sunlight before it reaches the surface of the Earth. So this is what they call stratospheric aerosol injection. Solar radiation management. Or it's called solar radiation management, which I don't think is is good a name because you're not really changing (laughs) the sun. You're just just injecting aerosols into the stratosphere. I think I like that one better. All right. So manipulating the climate intentionally on the planetary scale. Right. Yes. And so the problem is anyone who's sort of any familiarity with the history of science is that these kind of purposeful interventions invariably have unexpected bad side effects, right? And, you know, Elizabeth Colbert wrote this book, you know, Under a White Sky, where she talks about some of them, but everything from the cane toads, you know, in Australia. Anyway, there's just always like the best of intentions. And then there's this sort of, oh, we didn't think about that. And so I would argue in the next five years, we don't have a huge amount of time. You know, we have to figure out if doing something like this would have an unexpected, really bad side effect. And the concern that I have is that right now, I think sort of philosophically, we're not sort of looking at the right problem. So on the one hand, there's this issue, and and this is with climate models in general, where you run them in a sort of like what they call a policy relevant mode. Mm. right where you you know you have these earth system models with lots of feedbacks and you try to be as quote unquote you know the best of the science but these are very complicated models and they're what we call right computationally expensive in the sense that you can only run them with a couple of different scenarios you don't really have the flexibility to try out a lot of different ideas and and that's mm. what's happening right now with geoengineering is they've run some models with some relatively idealized scenarios, there's two different Earth system models that they run, and um, you know they were injecting aerosol in like you know 15 degrees north, 30 degrees north, 15 degrees south. Anyway, 
and simulating solar radiation. Simulating this, you know, stratospheric aerosol injection in a very idealized way. But to me, yeah, you should do that. But the more important thing that you should be worried about is not necessarily a policy relevant model, but I would say a physics sensitivity relevant modeling, which is that because those models are so computationally expensive, they're essentially just doing treatment and control. There's some variation with their initial conditions, but that's about it. It's essentially just treatment and control. So if we're trying to understand the sensitivity, we need to do a lot of different scenarios. We need to be looking at sort of a wide range. And what that means is that instead of taking weeks or months to run the model, it needs to like maybe run overnight, which means that we have to use a much simpler model, you know, and, and different people have these things like carry manual, you know, uses some of these were very simple idealized models. What's a minimum viable climate model for exploring the sensitivities of stratospheric aerosol injection and build it, run it on a wide range of scenarios it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to give you a lot of information about where the potential sensitivities are. Once you've got that, then go in and run the more detailed models. And maybe you do it in steps. Maybe you just go from a very simple model that runs overnight to another one that runs in a day or two, and then you just slowly increase the complexity, and then you sort of close in on where the sensitivities are. But I'm very worried about the sort of approach of the community, which is okay, we're going to just run these sort of policy relevant models, but we don't have, you know, the resources or the motivation to run lots of experiments with physics relevant models. So if we're talking about solar geoengineering, what I think you're describing are scientific problems of how to best research it. But I think if we're going to talk about this, we should at least briefly, or maybe more than briefly, talk about the overarching ethical problems, because I want to hear what you have to say about those. So as you've said, almost every time in history that people try to make some large scale intervention in the environment to cure some problem, it almost always leads to problems that are as bad or worse. Um, right. So there's just that knowledge of that mm -hmm. history that makes us all worried. But beyond that, there are some well-known things. Um, solar radiation management almost certainly would change the precipitation distribution on the planet. It doesn't do anything about acidification of the oceans, right. which is another effect of carbon dioxide. It has various other limitations. It only lasts a couple of years, so you have to keep doing it. And if you ever stop, you'll get very rapid warming at that point because it doesn't really prevent it. It's just sort of right. compensating for it. And to me, I think in some ways, the worst ethical problem is almost independent of any of that. It's just who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? Who gets to you know, to, to make an artificial intervention in the climate that's going to affect everybody. I mean, you can imagine idealistic ways of, of doing that. And the people who are advocating for it will say, well, we all say, yes, we should study the governance, but it's hard in the real world to imagine any really equitable way of doing it. So the question then for people like you and me, meaning scientists, mm -hmm. is that's not all under our control, but what might be under our control is whether and how we do research on it. And so the question then is, what are the ethical implications of doing research? And, you know, some people say, well, we should do the research no matter what, because we want to understand it. Any decision should be informed. And if we do do it, we want, we want to know what we're doing. And other people say, well, doing the research is a is inevitably a first step to make it happen. And so if you think it shouldn't happen, you probably shouldn't do the research. And there's every view in between, you know, there's many very 
shades of gray on both of those. But I'm just curious how you think about all that, because the way you've articulated it so far sort of sounds like, well, people are doing it. Um, it might happen. So there's some research. So here's how we can do the research better, which you haven't said anything about these, these quite, well, you, you've mentioned the cane toads, but I'm just, I just want to hear like talk more. about. Well, that. okay. So, so Kim Stanley Robinson's recent book, Ministry for the Future, which I read over the summer, I think, you know, that's really changed my perspectives on a lot of things related to climate change and what I should be doing. You know, he has a very plausible scenario, which is that an individual government after a horrendous wet bulb, you know, massive heat wave takes it into their own hands to do it. And yeah. I think that's very plausible. Um, yeah, it is. And as they point out in the book, if a government decides to do it, I mean, it doesn't take that much resources. There's nothing you can do to stop them. Uh, other than you could imagine wars being fought over it. Well, but I don't think I don't think you're going to fight a war over stratospheric aerosol injection. I, I hope not. I don't. I don't, I don't think know. so. I mean, well, if somebody yeah. believe if one country believed that you know if you had two countries that hated each other and one of them believes that it's hurting them mm -hmm. but it's helping somebody else, I don't know. I could imagine. I think I think it's more just like we've got a problem in our country. This is going to help our country. I think that's going to be the motivation. You know, right. and whether it's countries, you know, in the Persian Gulf or whether it's countries, you know, like India and right. Southeast Asia, where you've got horrendous consequences to your population and you're kind of like, okay, I think, you know, let's try this, right? Well, let's not preemptively blame other, I can imagine the US might do it. You know, I think there's this also issue about the industrialized North, right, created the problem. Do they have a right to inflict solutions? on people who are essentially innocent bystanders, but suffering the worst effects. But you're not talking about who has the right to do it. You're talking about who might do it. Well, right I, so not, I think, not. as I said, so I think an individual country may do it, or you might get, you know, maybe it might not even be country. It might be a corporation or it might be, you know, a consortium One of people. One rich guy. One rich guy. You don't, I mean, the resources <laughs> to do it are within the realm of many of the richest people on the planet. Yeah. Individually. Yes. Individually. They could just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I want to save the world and I'm going to do this. And you, there's nothing really you could do to stop them. And so then the question is, what do we do to try to understand this and mitigate any potential harms? So I, I must admit, you know, my thinking about this is still evolving there's this question of like moral hazard. Like if you think that this is plausible, then maybe you don't do the other necessary work like decarbonizing the economy. Exactly. But to me, you know, if I think about it from a scientific standpoint, where we should be investing is removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And there's lots of different ways of doing that, you know, whether it's growing trees or these various industrial methods. But how about emitting less? Admitting less, obviously, <laughs> to me, obviously, that's right. Stop adding to the problem. You know, can we get, can we really get to net zero? That'd be great if we could. But even net zero basically is net zero, right? It means you're not adding anymore, but you're still, you know, but, you know, back to what you said, right? Just reflecting sunlight doesn't affect ocean acidification, which is another enormous thing because that's going to affect the food chain, yeah. right? I mean, this is like the entire ocean ecosystem. You know, and particularly, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, communities that are dependent, right? Their food supply is dependent on the offshore fishing. You know, when those reefs die, that's, you know, so you're going to have climate migrations. I mean, as you said, so 
Yeah, I, I guess the other issue is this issue of like what they call opportunity costs is if you put a bunch of money into looking at geoengineering modeling, you know, you're not putting money into, let's say, like mitigation, like civil engineering. Like, so maybe, and this is something that I'm really wondering about, I think atmospheric science has done a really good job of explaining and understanding the climate problem, but maybe we're not the solution. Maybe the solution is more on the engineering side, you know, and yeah, partly yeah. that's just building buildings that are more resilient or moving, you know, infrastructure or figuring out how to do carbon capture, it, you know, in a scalable way, you know, or investing in fusion, which is, you know, right? It's always, fusion's always 15 years away, but, you know, if fusion works, right, that's carbon neutral way to get energy. I mean, just yeah. maybe we should just say, hey, you know, we've done a really good job explaining the problem, giving you the sort of likely scenarios and the potential timing of those scenarios, but the actual more pragmatic solutions are not what we do. So, I mean, I hear you saying a bunch of different things. Like one thing is when it comes to, to solar geoengineering, mm -hmm. you're saying both, well, this may happen anyway, whether, and we may not have any control over it, so maybe we should understand it. Maybe there's a little bit of questioning of whether, well, maybe it might be a good idea. I mean, what some people would say is, well, it's definitely a bad idea in the abstract to intentionally manipulate the climate system, but we're already manipulating it unintentionally and you know that's going to be catastrophic so it is a band-aid um i think gernot wagner in his book calls it like chemotherapy it's like you don't want mm. to do chemotherapy but it's better right. than alternative so there's all that but then now you're asking a broader question which is what's our role as scientists in this problem and i think it's unquestionably the case that we can't be the solution because that's not the definition of our science i mean the definition of our right. science is looking out at that climate and understanding it but i think when it comes to the moral hazard, I think it's really important to think about those things as dispassionately and, and, and honestly as we can. And I mean, you mentioned the moral hazard of, of that. If you think geoengineering is going to happen and it's going to work, then maybe you don't need to reduce carbon emissions. I think that moral hazard issue is huge. I mean, you talked about large corporations investing in it. There's no question that that's why, you know, many of them are investing it to whatever degree they are. So they mm -hmm. hope they can keep emitting, but isn't there a moral hazard for us as scientists too? And I don't just mean this with respect to geoengineering. I think we have to worry about that because we can all think, okay, now I can write a grant to do geoengineering and, you know, we can always say more research is a good thing. But even our field as a whole, I mean, I think about it. On the one hand, we write papers and proposals where we say there's important uncertainties we have to resolve because climate change is such a big problem. We have to know what's going on. And so, we you know, there's things we don't know and we have to learn them. But at the same time, we're saying we know enough to act and... Isn't there a little bit of a conflict there? I mean, if we know. No, I, act, I think then... there definitely is. So, and, and you and I have talked about this. So my perspective is that from a policy relevant standpoint, we already have sufficient information. The only way to perfectly predict the future is if you have a time machine and go back after what already happened. In terms of the exact timing and location, I think I'm not sure we're going to have materially better idea of that 10 years from now than we do now, even if we put a lot of investment in, I, I kind of feel like it's good enough. If people are going to act, I mean, you know, you go to different countries, right? And different governments have different senses of urgency about this, right? Right. You go to the Maldives and they're talking about the, you know, erasure of their country, right? right. 
And those differences are not based on differences in information. No, those differences are not based. They're not thinking, oh, if I just wait for the next, you know, climate model, I'll have a better idea of, you know, the month in which I'll have to abandon the country. I mean, you know, it's it's not going to change it. And and I would argue you can't get that, you know, or even the year, you know, what's the last year, you know, the capital of the Maldives will be inhabitable. We don't need more climate modeling to get that. And I, and I would argue we probably can't get at that. You know, we have enough. You know, it's like, okay, if this is going to happen, right, maybe I don't know the exact timing, but I should be prepared, you know, getting ready, figuring out what to do. Can we mitigate the worst side effects of this? Is there anything we can do to help our populations, you know, adjust? So, yeah, I would argue from a policy relevant standpoint, we already have from the climate modeling that we have, we have sufficient information to make these kind of big decisions and to act. Especially given how far we are from doing it. In other words, if we were if we were doing better, you could say, well, we need more science so we can fine tune the decision. But when we're so far from it, it's right. So I, I do think, though, there is particularly critical, though, is is this issue about looking trying to understand tipping points Mm. right every year right we get worse news from like the antarctic and the greenland ice sheet right you know is there anything we can do to mitigate that you know how much time do we have before you know one of these major ice sheets drops off and the sea levels rise yeah that's a subplot in ministry for the future too yeah and that's an interesting we're not not gonna we're not gonna spoil it too much (laughs) <laughs> but, but yeah, but, but it's like, you know, is there anything you can do to sort of, right. So yeah, I, I think focus on those kinds of things, you know, and the, the issue with the ocean circulation and things like that, but those may not be so much atmospheric science questions. So, so what's our role? Are we well, outdated or are we? Yeah. So okay, what is our role? So I, th- I think this sort of relates to my own sort of changing. It's just one trying to understand what's already happened. People are focusing a lot on extreme events, but, you know, back to my sort of interest in routine weather, you know, I think we're sort of underappreciating, you know, like there's things like the seasons that are used for planting, right? They've shifted, right? And that's sort Mm -hmm. of like in the background, it's like, oh yeah, they're not the same as they were in the seventies. I mean, those kinds of things, like how does that sort of feed into like changing what we're planting where and agriculture? Again, if you sort of Mm. think about those kind of problems, if you think about atmospheric science, related to problems of sustainability. To me, that would be a better use of our resources. Yeah. Because, you know, they are limited, right? It's, it's time and it's money. You know, people only have certain, you know, yeah, there's only so many hours in the day. There's only, you know, so can we sort of shift more to thinking about sustainability? Like, okay, if we have to live with this, you know, what infrastructure, right? Because it takes a while to change infrastructure. Right. And I'm wondering, I mean, while we're talking about this, I mean, this is, you know, these are mm-hmm. hangups that I have and, and, and my issues that I'm, I bring up with those who are willing to talk about them with me, which I'm hoping you'll be. Has your thinking at all this been affected by the last five years and the Trump era, which I would I say isn't over yet, probably, in the sense that, you know, as you describe these things and you say we should do this or that to to protect our population. There's sort of a kind of a global thinking of some decision-making process that's informed by science. And I think a lot of us think that way, me included. But the, the Trump years in particular, I think there's an underlying assumption there that's maybe was always somewhat fictional, but it became to seem increasingly fictional in, in, in these last few years in the sense that 
there isn't an ultimately rational, fair, just process in there. And I think that's been, I didn't really consciously think there was until I didn't anymore. And the way I have started thinking about it now is like we were talking about science fiction at the beginning. Mm-hmm. If you think about, you know, myths that you and I grew up with, and you mentioned Star Trek, like think about mm-hmm. how it works in Star Trek. I always identified with Spock, right? He's the scientist and we could, you know, there's other. No, and I also we, identified with Spock. So yeah. Right. We could talk about, you know, how we could talk about all the reasons that is and what that says about us. But, you know, how do the typical episode is, right? They're in trouble. They're either fighting the aliens or some other mm-hmm. cosmic thing that's going on and they're in trouble and they're, li- you know, they're in danger. And Spock, or maybe it's sometimes the other crew members, but often it's Spock goes and looks at some data and makes some clever discovery and figures it out and says to Jim, I think we should do that. You know, we should reverse Mm -hmm. the fate, you know, makes up some science, the thing that they should do. And then Kirk says, okay, fine, do it. And then they do it. And the, you know, the the crew is saved and whoever else is saved. And a few things about this, I've just been thinking about more and more in the last couple, you know, few months, even one is that first of all, the United Federation of Planets is basically a futuristic utopian USA, right? It's this sort of benevolent quasi empire that goes around, you know, that has these, this USA's vision of itself in the post-war period as this sort of yeah. benevolent, benevolent power, you know, right. and going around the universe, but it's, it's, it's pluralistic. And, you know, for the time, right. Star Trek had a more diverse cast than other mm-hmm. shows, even though now it looks, you know, it doesn't look so much that way, but it, at the time it was. But the thing that was the, that's the most painful for me looking back on it is that like Spock kind of knew that if he comes up with a solution that like that information will be used to do the right thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I didn't, really think that I consciously think that I believe that that was how the world works. But now that I believe it's not how the world works, I realize that I sort of did on some level. And I wonder if this has changed the way you think about these things as well, or if you're not tormented by this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think, yeah. So there's sort of, you know, certainly a Star Trek episode is sort of limited by the narrative arc in a single episode. Right. (laughs) So you, you can't get too complicated, but you know, if you, if you look back at the old series, you know, they did at some points try to address sort of the cultural context of the aliens, you know, right. One of the most important things of the Federation, right. Is the non-interference. Yeah. Right. This is their highest law, right? That they should not right. interfere with another culture. Prime directive. Yeah. Right. The prime directive. Right. So sometimes, right, they would have an episode with sort of a similarly technologically advanced species. And sometimes they would go to, you know, less advanced species. And the prime directive was in force. And so there is another side of Star Trek, and I think this also came out in in The Next Generation, where trying to look at things from the perspective of the people on the planet who do see things differently from the Federation. Right. Yeah. And, that, that's All that's in there. Yeah. But, but what I'm asking is, there's a fundamental presumption, you know, there's, and there's flawed people mm-hmm. and there's, you know, dysfunction and occasionally right. corruption and bad behavior. But on some level, what's never questioned and what I think it transmitted Mm -hmm. to young, impressionable, you know, nerds like me, at least, is, you know, we're fundamentally good and science is part of how we do good things. And that sort of chain of, you know, works. Yeah, no. And I think that's definitely true for Star Trek. Yes. I mean, if as a scientist, you believe that there's a benevolent power structure that's going to do something positive with the information you produce and the understanding you produce, then your job is to just do the science. Mm -hmm. But if you don't believe that, then the job of the scientist changes and you have to 
be politicized in a sense, in, in the sense that not necessarily that you have to do your science in every respect with a political objective in mind, but it means you have to understand for whom you're doing it and why in a way that maybe you didn't when you just had a belief in the system that paid your salary. You know what I mean? If you if you think that there's different uses to which your science can be put in, you might like some of them and not like others, then understanding that becomes part of your job. Yeah, I, I think it's also this issue about like decentralized action. If you if you think about like the reality of climate mitigation, it's happening, you know, at the state and county and city level, right? And you you know, you have cities uh-huh. that are that are already, you know, moving ahead in terms of in, you know, New York City is one of them, in terms of their climate mitigation plans independent of the federal government. The federal government is kind of very slow and the works are gummed up right now. And and I don't think that's gonna change. It but could get can, much worse. Yeah, it could get worse. But can you have actions? And a part of this is giving the states the freedom to do what they see fit. And so certain states are going to make different decisions than other states. But yeah, letting, you know, sort of having more context in that sort of lo- what is appropriate. What's appropriate for Miami may not be appropriate for Norfolk, Virginia. You know, But I don't think the states have the capacity to fund science the way the federal government has. I mean, the other issue is, you know, right, the big science versus small science. You know, I think as a community, you know, we talked about the big projects are harder and harder to do and, you know, sort of classic ones you could never redo. I, you know, I'm sort of of the opinion that lots of little, small, you know, there's certain things where you need a big project, but that I think we can actually make a fair amount of progress with sort of smaller things. You know, the nice thing about smaller projects is you can be more focused on a small set of science objectives and because you don't need that many people, you know, so I think this is another interesting question. If you sort of think about knowledge per dollar, what's what's the most efficient way to learn about something? I mean, there's some interesting, you know, thinking because I'm, you know, reading about startups lately. And there's this idea of the purpose of a startup is to learn about, you know, what you should do, right? Because the most common reason why startups fail is because they build a product nobody wants. But they really emphasize, you know, what they call a minimum viable product and testing, testing, testing. It's just like test it and learn and test Mm -hmm. it and learn. And this idea that you just very rapidly, you try it out, you learn something, you refine it, maybe you pivot. That kind of thing is very hard to do in a big weather model or a big climate model. I don't think, you know, we're not, necessarily learning a lot about the atmosphere from those, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, sort of right from the climate model, these policy relevant things, but, you know, I don't know, I'm not articulating it very well. Yeah. I think the discussion of climate models versus anything else is maybe we, maybe we should leave that for another day, but, yeah, the, we argument of, leave it for another. but the argument of small science versus big science and long-term things versus short-term things is, um, we were having this discussion as in our group of colleagues the other day that was, you know, Columbia starting new climate school. And so we were talking about how, what we think the role of some particular group of scientists in it should be that I'm part of. And it's always tempting to argue for growth that we want more of this or that. Fundraising is always about doing new things. If you're trying to get somebody to give you money, you always want them to believe that they're, it's going to do something that you weren't doing before. So there's an inherent structural bias in organizations that are always trying to raise money. Right. Against saying we're going to do something for a long time because that's what it takes. A lot of us don't really necessarily want growth. We just want security. I mean, we just want to not 
be always sweating to, I mean, you and I aren't literally on soft money anymore, you know, mm-hmm. but in some sense we are because all the people that we work with, are, we work with right. lots of people that are and our organizations live on it. So, you know, we would all love to be sweating the next, you know, grant a little less, but. So let's talk about this growth thing, because I think there's this growth versus sustainability. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading lately, you know, about the food system and about climate and everything else. And there's sort of this thread in a lot of it that this idea of infinite growth is is clearly mistaken, right? You can't keep growing everything. Right. Right. There's a, it's a finite planet. And right. so culturally, I mean, and this is bigger than science, can you start thinking about, okay, can we get to a sustainable level where everyone has like a reasonable standard of living where you, you know, you don't have the extreme poverty that you have. I mean, you know, and, and I think, you know, in general, right over the last few decades, those things have improved, but I mean, there's still a ways to go, but even, you know, in the U S there's issues with, you know, income inequality, like what's enough, like, okay. Cause if there's a finite pie, like, let's just talk about like research. If there's a finite pie, let's say from the federal government to study severe weather, right. And university a says, Oh, we're going to have a new big center. And then they grab money. And then, you know, the other universities who were doing that work lose their money. I mean, I'm not sure that necessarily solves anything, right? right. Because University A is saying, well, you know, we're just going to grow our program, but they're growing their program in the context of finite resources. You know, can we sustain a diversity? You know, we talk about different perspectives. If, if everything is done in one organization, right, that's not necessarily good for science because, you know, organizations have their own little organizational culture. There's not, nece- you know, depending on how they're run, certain perspectives may not be thought about. Right. I so, mean, there's certain things that only happen at scale, right? Like we right. all like to be in places where a lot of things are happening and where right. and where there's connections that can be made between people doing different things because they're all co-located. I mean, these are right. all, you know, arguments that apply to many other contexts, but it's interesting to see them play out in the context of our own institutions. And and I and I think the pressure, you know, the the the, the pitch you're making for small science and long-term things is a, it's a hard one to make in the context right. of our institutions. And I think the reasons for that are come from the larger culture where they're hard to make every, in every context. Right. But I think, you know, if you look at the Europeans, which I have, I would argue, a more like pluralistic. I mean, you, you talked about the Federation, you know, being sort of a model for what United States thought it was. But I think in terms of current situation, I think Europe might be a better analog for the Federation. Where, you know, they they have sort of European sort of centered resources for science, and then they also have national resources for science, and that, you know, individual scientists in, you know, universities or research lab usually sort of tap into both types of money. Because they have their national sources of money, what one of the things that I noticed when I was working with the European Raider community is that there's much more cooperation because like if you know, the Baltic countries solve a problem and then, you know, they can use that in Spain, you know, they're, everybody's fine about that. Whereas here, you know, we have a lot of sort of interagency rivalries that often, you know, can get in the way of, of cooperation and collaboration. Okay. Well, um, we've been talking almost three hours. Okay. It was not my intent to keep you this long, but thank you. Thank you for uh, doing it. <laughs> <laughs> we never know where things are going to go. And so we like to, I don't like to stop them, you know, when it, it seems like there might be more interesting things. So great. I guess we covered it. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Adam. And um, yeah, I'm glad I did it. And thank you for asking me. I'm glad you did, you did it too. Okay. Good night, okay. Sandra. All right. Good night. Okay. That was a good one, right? You've got to love a conversation between two scientists about the relative strengths and weaknesses of scientific research organization and funding in the U.S. versus Europe in the context of which one lives up better to the ideals of the United Federation of Planets from Star Trek. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group where our editor and post-producer is Stefan Wiener, and our audio engineer is Livia Wicks. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>